Hello, I'm Adam Clark. You're listening to And Thereby Hangs a Tale. Our topic for this month is birth. Hmm. Now that, as a stray white dude, well, as a dude in general, I don't have too much information on. I better watch a movie to research. The Davises have had a baby, but they're not sending out any announcements. Most new parents are a little scared when they have a baby. The Davises are terrified. You see, there's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. It's alive. It's alive. Don't see it alone. Please. Rated PG. That was rated PG? Ah, that was too spooky. Oh, I better rely on my guests to do most of the talking, because I learned nothing from the Monster Baby movie. Ah, who do we have on the horn this month? Hello. My name's Beth. Oh my god, it's the It's Just a Show crossover event of the season. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Adam. Yes. This is a, it's a roomier space than it, uh, it's just a show. <laughs> it's a woomier space than it's just a show. Oh boy. As our listeners will soon find out. Good lead in. <laughs> Beth, you told me off-pod why you want to tell this story. Do you mind filling our listeners in? The majority of women end up having a pregnancy and having a kid. This is not an unusual tale. It's also the case that I didn't know very many women's stories. Like, it's not something that women talk about. I don't think they're encouraged to talk about it. And what really did it for me was when I was pregnant and just trying to get some sort of knowledge around it, I read one woman's birth story in a paper. And one of the comments was, why is this in a newspaper? Nobody cares. That enraged <laughs> me so much because it's just that that kind of, you know, place of privilege that you get where just because I'm not interested in it and it doesn't affect my life, mm-hmm. then it doesn't, I should not have to see it. You know, I should not have to assault my eyes with things I'm not interested in or perspectives I don't care about. Uh, and it's just like, this is really a fundamental transformation that uh, most women go through and it's terrifying and it's and it's transformational and you know what it would probably benefit everybody in the human population to hear what these stories are like so that's what i'm fighting against right now that means we'll have to treat this topic with respect so i'm gonna have to think real hard about my opening question beth what's it like to be pregnant Uh, I didn't much care for it. When you had gotten, uh, as is medically uh, sound in terms of terminology, knocked up, (laughs) was that something that you always wanted to be part of your life? Was that something you changed your mind on? Definitely, I was against it for a good part of my life. And I think there was a lot of reasons for that. Um, I come from a uh, a rural background. I went to a Catholic school and... Uh, didn't really fit in. So, you know, when you don't fit in, you often try to feel find ways of feeling like, well, I don't need to because I'm better than these people, you know, just <laughs> to, get, to deal with the fact that you're not fitting in very well. And so I, I just had a bit of a disdain for people who didn't seem to have any more in store for themselves rather than just having a kid getting a house, settling down, and that's life, you know? Mm. And also, since it was uh, a Catholic school, you know, they really pushed uh, pro-life 
kind of situations. And I always really pushed against that because it was, you know, you're trapping the woman for the next 20 years. Well, the rest of her life, really, in a relationship she maybe didn't want to deal with. And I just always felt that sense of, like, the injustice of, of trapping a woman like that in their own biology. And I saw that happen. I had some high school acquaintances that got knocked up and they kept the kid. I'm like, well, that's, that's the end of your life. Like whatever ambitions you had uh, <laughs> are gone. And that was a very, because I just had never seen it happen. Like I'd never seen an example of, uh, of a young single mother still having a career and, ambitions and you know having success in life i did later and that that started to change my mind once i got out of my little you know shell and started to meet different kinds of people once i went to university but even more than that i think it was uh you know from a feminist angle that you you lose a lot of freedoms when you have a kid but uh it was also kind of a body horror thing Hmm. i've always had a real um just like if if you want me to be really horrified by a movie or get, have something that just sits with me forever in this kind of like aghast state, it's when somebody is transformed bodily in a way they didn't want. Hmm. So, for instance, that's why I haven't seen Cronenberg's *A Fly*, even though uh, part of me kind of wants to see it, but uh, I don't know if I could handle it. Or uh, lesser than um, oh, what's his face who did *Clerks*. Oh, Kevin Smith. Yeah, his his <laughs> walrus thing. Like even that, even like in a Kevin Smith context, I can't handle it. So. Wow. <laughs> so you're the rare person who has objected to Tusk on principle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's uh, too extreme for me. <laughs> I've also been fortunate that I haven't had to deal with a lot of my body changing in ways that I don't want to. My body has basically been the same since puberty, for better or for worse. Okay. And so uh, the idea of the dramatic transformations it might undergo in ways that you might never, it might never change back was really scary to me. Like I remember one of the things, first things that I read is that often your foot size goes up. Oh, size. weird. Yeah, because uh, the pressure from the, uh, the pregnancy on your body just flattens out your feet. So a lot of women go up a shoe size. And I'm already a size 10. That's quite big for, for a woman. <laughs> so it's just like, no, that'll put me in a specialty size. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then I started dating him, uh, a guy who is now my husband. And he made no bones about the fact that he thought that young children were awesome. And he loved you know, seeing young ch- children develop. And he wanted four kids. <laughs> just like... And that was almost a deal breaker for me, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily you compromised at one. <laughs> that seems fair. That was a lot of give and take, I take it. <laughs> but it was just more that I, um, you know, your life starts to change a little bit. I, I my life, my my attitude started to change because he made it sound a little bit more positive than I had kind of imagined it in my mind. And then friends of mine started to get pregnant. And then what, what you start to realize in your 30s is that even if you don't have a kid, your life is still affected by children because your friends are suddenly not accessible anymore or like their lives change dramatically, right? Mm-hmm. So your, your life and your expectations with them kind of change alongside. 
Um, and then the the final thing that I think changed my mind was I had undergone a fertility test just for kicks. I love doing medical tests and um, <laughs> found out that I am rapidly running out of eggs. So oh. it's it's nothing like having a choice potentially taken away from you where you're like, oh, maybe I do want that. Okay. Well, when did you, like, what prompted you to, to, to do that? Uh, that fertility test. I just wanted to get a sense of how much, how long I could procrastinate on making a decision. <laughs> and seeing that there was an alarming lack of time, did did you immediately go about trying to have a, a kid at that point? Yeah, the uh, fertility specialist, uh, I had told her, I think I was 33 at the time, and I said just where I was uh, in my doctorate and where Jeremy was in his career, I said, I would really ideally like to wait another year. And she said, uh, under your condition, I wouldn't advise it. Ooh. So uh, I was like, oh, all right. And so uh, I know my mom had trouble conceiving, so I figured, oh, maybe I will too. So why don't I just... You know, why don't we just see what happens? And I was fully expecting it to go for months without anything happening. And basically, like the month after I, I yanked out the IUD, boom, I'm pregnant. <laughs> the funny thing with IUDs is that is basically what happens. As soon as you yank it out, you're you're more or less back to fertility again. Mm. It's almost immediate. So I did not take that information once I found out very well at all. <laughs> Uh, that uh, that you were running out of time. No, the running out of time thing I took in stride, but finding out I was pregnant. Oh, oh boy! <laughs> but wait, weren't you trying at that point? Or I was, I was trying, but I just I didn't expect it to happen so fast. Hmm. And then when it happened, the realization of just how dramatically my life was going to change just kind of hit me like a like a brick. Now I want to backtrack. All right, <laughs> I. Just based on your initial hesitancy and even dislike of pregnancy and motherhood and what you saw then, by the sounds of it, as surrendering to something or being imprisoned by something, mm -hmm. was that colored at all by relationships you had with other kids when you were a kid, uh, experiences that you had with kids as you got older, and or your relationship with your own mother or other mothers? It might have been. Um, certainly, like I babysat a lot, and wow. uh, you know, especially younger children, and I found them uh, boring and draining. <laughs> I'm sorry. The problem with Billy and Susie is that they're boring. <laughs> <laughs> like it, these, it, these 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 watercolor paintings are so jejune. <laughs> that, well, I mean, that's that. I mean, not surprising for a teenager, I think. But I was just, <laughs> I just wasn't willing to come down to their level i think at that point and so it was just like you know I, I was a good babysitter the kids loved me but when i was done i was just like i'm gonna go home and watch tv and do all the things i couldn't when a kid was around <laughs> um i guess maybe it's a bit affected by my mother too who um when she had kids she left her job and she was a stay-at-home mom for most of my childhood and then she started working again and i always had the sense that she she sacrificed something for that you know that she sacrificed uh her own ambitions and her own abilities uh for the sake of a family i think my my perspective on that has shifted as i've gotten older and i've gotten to understand her as a person a little bit better as opposed to just a mom but yeah. i think i was very 
cognizant for my in my teens and twenties of not repeating that pattern. I, I just remember I, I horrified a coworker once by saying, "If I have kids, I am immediately getting a nanny, and they can raise them." <laughs> you wanted to walk down the stairs and see your uh, your kids with their uh, suitcases already packed, and announce that they're being shipped off to boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Here, you can both tie a red ribbon around your index fingers to remember Mumsy. <laughs> they come home for Christmas. Oh, it's nice to see you. You seem to be coming along nicely. <laughs> see, I I very much had uh, similar feelings when I was uh, younger. Uh, I remember thinking, it's like, you know, the ideal thing would be to get to a certain age, 40 or 50. Oh, no, I forgot to have a kid. Oh, I'll just adopt a man my own age. <laughs> so that i can like call call him or a woman my own age and call them and and sort of passively aggressively go like why uh why didn't you call me on my birthday you know your your uncle hasn't heard from you in a long time and do that like all the all the nasty horrible things that i remember of uh being a parental figure it's like that's what you want to impose on someone i mean who wants to raise and form a child's mind Mm -hmm. it just seemed like you know i just remember the story uh, I had read about um, a spider. It's a type of spider, a very common kind of spider. Uh, they're all over the place. But when uh, the mother spider has, she she, ha- she lays a whole bunch of eggs and they hatch. And mm. then she gives off an enzyme that encourages her babies to eat her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there was a recent podcast about this. And, like, she invites it. I'm just like, oh, I hate how that encapsulates <laughs> so much about felt. motherhood. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it's, I mean, if, if we're looking to, um, find, uh, find meaning about, uh, about raising kids from the, from the insect or arachnid kingdom, <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's a good choice, especially when you find out what a spider wasp is, which is similarly horrifying. It's true. Yeah. It just like, it's, it's hard to untie, like what biology requires of parents generally like certain kinds of sacrifices and what has been imposed on women to sacrifice absolutely and how that kind of uh sacrifice of your own uh your own life is just something that is elevated to a point of nobility and i was just like i don't want anything any part of that at all What was what was your thought uh, in regards to <laughs> receiving delicious candies once a year <laughs> and a card saying thank you for being a mom? <laughs> Surely that makes up for it. Oh yes. Oh, their their penmanship is getting so good. <laughs> oh my! And, and every year you get a, a nice variation on either Garfield or that one old lady who's got like blue hair and her hair tied off in a bonnet, and she's got like sunglasses, and she used to smoke in the '80s cards, but now she doesn't anymore. I think her name is Maxine. <laughs> yes, those old Maxine cards, which they still make. Yeah. <laughs> So you have like a lifetime of Maxine cards. Uh, honestly, a, a, a single uh, woman or even a, a married woman without kids would never receive a Maxine card. Bet so, my my God, this is a that's an important cultural <laughs> touchstone too. It's true. <laughs> uh, so I guess go, going over it. So you, you had your experiences as like a child and a teenager, and most of what you can recall is colored by your experiences as a babysitter, right? 
uh, yes, a babysitter and just generally wanting to having ambitions that didn't necessarily involve you know getting married and having kids yeah i I just meant your impressions of children yeah impressions of children uh yeah i just i was a a very self-centered impatient a young person and uh that kind of nurturing didn't really like I, i just i think i avoided sentimentality and nurturing uh, generally, just because I was worried about getting branded with those kinds of feminine qualities. I was trying very hard, like, I think I was trying very hard not to be too feminine because I was very good at math and sciences and I just didn't want to get uh, an impression of weakness at any point. Wow. That's a thing you never really have to think about as a man is embracing other kinds of things lest you be thought of in a certain way i mean i suppose that's true to a certain degree but it's like i don't think it's anywhere near the same like it's certainly not not as uh ever present a horror because there's nothing you have to constantly worry about and that's something i'm hearing from women throughout my life is that you're you you have you're it's almost like and I'm curious if you agree with this. It's almost like you're not allowed in a way to just kind of develop on your own. You're always developing as a reaction against something. Yeah. And I, that's a really good observation. I, I think at the time I didn't realize now that I have, you know, schooling and I understand, you know, and this is what I really appreciate about feminism is it has given us the language to examine these things, not as just neutral things in the air but as as systems that are affecting you in the way you think in often oppressive ways so at the time i was just like i'm not like other women and i don't want to be seen as those other women because i i feel like they're limited because of their femininity like especially in high school i hung out with all mostly men Mm -hmm. and their girlfriends and uh (laughs) that must have been fun you were like richard nixon driving his future wife out on dates yeah it was it was weird but i mean like i was the i was one of the few girls who liked the simpsons and could quote it on command wait there are women who don't like the simpsons in my high school they were few and far between they just (laughs) and i liked weird things like mystery science theater 3000 Mm -hmm. and um dragon ball z like i i i liked cool things that uh guys respected and i felt in retrospect i wasn't arrested i wasn't (laughs) i in retrospect i was treated very badly because i didn't have a man to protect me oh and so i was often the butt of the jokes and it was not great but at the time i felt at least that i was accepted in a way and i felt and i will admit i felt a kinship with them Hmm. more closely than i had with female relationships before then so that might have been tying it too is just like you know wanting that kind of traditional female role would have been like uh saying that i'm not actually that cool and different after all and i think this is something that a lot of uh women struggle with is uh the sense that they don't want to be even aligned with feminism because it, they they're worried it'll limit them in some way and i think that's also why i went to a little bit of a randian phase in my childhood <laughs> And part, it was a it was a reaction to Catholicism, which is like you need to feel guilty about everything. Mm-hmm. And Anne Rand is like, you don't need to feel guilty about anything. Yeah, be more selfish. <laughs> yeah. So it was that, but it was also like it's it's like Margaret Thatcher. Like she was 
the first female prime minister of UK, but she didn't do anything for women's rights. Like no. she was more than anything an individualist who was not going to be held back by uh, standards, and she was also not going to help anyone else overcome their weaknesses. And I think for a while, that's how I kind of aligned my thinking. <laughs> I I can only imagine you at some point telling somebody Beth only cares about one person. Beth. <laughs> <laughs> when was your Randian phase? I must know. Uh I, I would say like 16 or so, and it didn't last very long. Like no. as soon as I was I think I had to as well, like because nobody else was really caring about me. So I just had to become <laughs> I had to become like absolutely selfish for a while. So, I, I feel like. Wait, when you when you say that no one else was caring about you or looking after you, like what what, what exactly do you mean by that? Uh, well, I just you know like I like I was saying in, in retrospect, it was because I was a woman that I was being singled out for so much uh, bad treatment. But I always just felt like I was always at risk of. I I always felt like my friendships in high school were very precarious and that one wrong word and I would just be out on my own and by myself again <laughs> and uh my parents they're sweet people but they are not the type of people to discuss emotional turmoil with I see I just remember when I had this really uh really unexpected and very traumatizing breakup later on in my 20s my dad was just like well, he dumped you. Just get over it and move on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, Beth, is your father Mater the talking truck played by Larry the Cable Guy in the Cars movies? <laughs> you know, I've never seen that. I would say he's more like Archie Bunker. Okay. Oh, so just hugely racist. All right. <laughs> Maybe not like that either, but just like very, you know, no, no, no space for sentimentality. Life is hard. Gotcha. How long did you have that sense of you're out on your own because i know you mentioned like okay you had a randian phase that <laughs> it's just fun to say that <laughs> uh but also i think most people do i think uh and especially teenagers yeah well i think that when you're in, like in your like kind of like late high school years or your early university years you uh <laughs> you you end up um I think in this weird mix of being, uh, I think, uh, uh, fiscally liberal but socially conservative. <laughs> like, I, I A think, little bit, yeah. I, I think that uh, I think that people who see themselves as as, as fairly uh, uh, live and let live and less a fair, nonetheless, have like a uh, a hard right wing belief about what uh, people can do uh in their early years that they kind of sort through <laughs> later on it's like oh maybe things only apply to to me and i can't judge everybody by that standard yeah so as soon as i went to university i was i was divested of it very quickly first of all because i made friends with a single mother and i had made some oh. comment about how welfare just makes things worse and she's like fuck you <laughs> <laughs> did you subscribe to the belief that there were uh quote-unquote welfare queens uh I don't know. I can't remember. I'm, I'm sure I, I didn't have like the critical context to really examine that in a way like why, you know, why do people believe this versus I'm, I'm sure I just assumed, yeah, there must be a thing because uh, my uh, we had a lot of family members that my parents disparaged as living off of disability, quote unquote. So. Oh, wow. 
so that was the kind of like I grew up in a very Protestant, hardworking kind of environment mm-hmm. where your value is kind of based on how hard you work. So, you know, I, I think I came by it honestly. But it was also just uh, I got introduced to a different way of looking at the world. Like even though I, I started university in science, I imme- almost immediately started moving into an arts background, and that. Uh, it doesn't happen for everybody, but it made me a more humane, thoughtful, uh, caring person. And uh, also someone on my uh, residence floor was a dyed-in-the-wool objectivist, as she called herself, and she was nuts. So I was like, oh, this is where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, she was a self-proclaimed objectivist? I've never met such a person. Yeah, she, uh, like just a pure objectivist like everything she did everything she thought was through a la- a, the lens of objectivism how <laughs> like, yeah. well not well <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think in, in future dsms objectivism is going to be listed as a mental illness <laughs> you make a you make a friend there who is a single mom and I assume that wasn't just one conversation. Like, how did you kind of come to mellow out? Or was it just simply a matter of knowing how much she had to be on welfare, knowing how that she could not work full time and pursue a degree and raise a child on her own? Like, when when do your thoughts start to change on that? Well, I, I think I admired her pluckiness because, it, yes, it was an accident and she wasn't expecting to get pregnant, but... She found a way and she still was, you know, going out and having fun. I mean, her mom had taken had taken the, the child to look after him for, for most of the week and she'd see him on weekends so that she could finish her schooling. And uh, I still was kind of quietly judgmental about getting herself in that situation. But I, I admired the fact that and it kind of at the time also, felt, you know, fitted that randian kind of perspective like people who work hard and are resourceful will find a way okay but at this point still it's like you're moving away from those particular beliefs of of becoming i guess a bit more accepting about uh welfare and looking on mothers in a better light but at that point you're still not at all uh, tickled by the idea of entering into that phase yeah. for yourself. I was certainly, I think, more admiring of of what mothers need to do to get by. And of course, I was like moving away from like, yeah, social social s- structures of support are good and they help, uh, you know, deserving people get to where they, you know, f- fulfill their their potential instead of just leaving them in the dust. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was starting to change. I was. Uh, you know, just becoming more oriented with uh, one of my professors is really involved with uh, queer issues, and I, I, I don't identify as queer myself, but I, I, I really sympathize with that perspective, you know, the outsider perspective, and yeah. I have gotten more involved with uh, uh, with that kind of thinking and got exposed to a lot of thinkers that way, and that I think. At the same time, it made me a more liberal person. It made me even more reluctant to have children because, uh, you know, a, a big part of the queer experience for a, a lot of queer people is t- that they don't have children, that they don't continue themselves on, that they're not breeders, right? Mm-hmm. So, oddly enough, being more left made me even more reluctant to have children because I didn't want to follow in, follow in, t- sorry, fall into this uh, 
you know, prescribed role uh, as the unthinking breeder. <laughs> so a lot of this seems to be based on approval with you, Beth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At first, it's like, I hope I hope straight dudes will like me. And then the next, <laughs> it's like a decade later, it's like, I wish to be beloved by gays and lesbians <laughs> of all stripes. Please like me. Yes. A lot of decisions that we make come from not wanting to disappoint or earn the ire of people we don't actually know. (laughs) (laughs) Or or even people you do know, Mm -hmm. you know, like I was, I was actually really worried if I ever had a kid that I'd lose a lot of my friends who had made a decision for whatever reason to not have children, that that would just be inevitably a difference that we would have a struggle getting over. What do you think that they would react to you and be like, Oh, she has a kid gross <laughs> or that you just the more realistic thing, which is that you, we would have a hard time lining up schedules and making time to hang out. Lining up schedules. And also I was just afraid of becoming boring. And hmm. it's something I still, frankly, even with a kid struggle with because you just don't have time to be out in culture anymore and frankly your brain is kind of fried a lot of the time so you don't feel like watching challenging you know uh critically renowned pieces of culture you just want to watch something familiar and warm and cozy for a while all all i could watch was half hour uh sitcoms it's the only thing i could manage to get the energy up to absorb uh i have to ask then at the low point of that what is the worst thing that you watched just because it was on i watched a lot of everybody loves raymond (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-huh i was wondering so do you think that was the most punishing thing you put yourself through i I enjoyed every minute of it at the time I, I've seen very little of that show, so I can't really comment. I know that uh, Peter Boyle was the dad, who is an actor I totally love. He's great in it. Yeah. So is, um, oh, what's her name? Marie, I don't know who plays her, but she's an amazing Well, actress. isn't that George's? No, it's not George's mom, but she's uh, she's from something else, and I'm blanking on her too. But yeah, the two parents of Raymond were why you'd want to watch the show. In much the same way that when like Frasier went off the rails when Niles and Daphne finally got together, it's like you only tuned in because John Mahoney was so good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just like it when an old man says, Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but moving on. Were any of the relationships that you were in prior to meeting your now husband, was the issue of kids ever brought up or were you kind of on a similar wavelength with those partners? I think I was on a similar wavelength okay. that, uh, well, I, I, to put it mildly, I, I dated some man children <laughs> who, <laughs> hey, who uh, doesn't, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, who, uh, you know, they, they had bands. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> I'll travel the world and see the many wonderful and adventurous things and uh, i actually had a i have a great aunt who was kind of the model i wanted to follow she uh she was a teacher because you didn't have a lot of other choices back then but she was childless and she retired very early and just went around the world she found a cheap way to travel the world as an amateur astronomer on cruise ships you really don't need to have a lot of expertise to get like a regular spot on a cruise ship not to say that she doesn't know a lot but she doesn't have a degree in astronomy or anything or she would stay for a long time in hawaii and in the day and like in the mornings she would like clean out the toilets and so she'd be able to stay there for free you know 
just these great arrangements of 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 seeing the world i'm like yeah i want to do that and then um uh, and then you know the 30s come you're like i'm too tired to travel (laughs) i don't know how she has the energy to do it also i'm too anxious i hate i hate when things are unknown and travel there's just so many unknown variables there it wasn't until my current husband where I was thinking about the future with that person in any kind of definite way. And when it had been very clearly put to me, hey, I want children. (laughs) Did he say it just like that? I hope so. Not really, but he's just saying, yeah, I love children. I think they're wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to being a dad. I mean, he later said, like, if you really don't want to have children, like, you're more important to me than kids. But, you know, just got to be honest about how I feel. Mm -hmm. And besides, you could do what a lot of couples do and just get a cat. Yeah, we did try that. It was a horrible cat. Oh, no. Oh, I hated that cat so much. <laughs> I really resented that cat being here. <laughs> Wait, was was this simply because the cat hated you? Like, please tell me about your horrible cat tangent or no. <laughs> so the cat was almost like the run for uh, a kid. And it did not go well. Because as soon as that cat was in my space, I'm like, I really resent this cat. I don't want this cat here. This is changing my life in ways that I didn't want. So the cat never had a chance. No, the cat never had a chance. That poor cat. I have so much sympathy for that cat. Uh, and I think she could tell I didn't like her because she really glommed on to uh, my husband. Hmm. But she was uh, she had troubles. I, I don't know what kind of situation she came from, but uh, she puked a lot. And I'm kind of a neat freak, so I was like... And I had this nervous tick wherever I had heard, I, whenever I heard a noise, it's kind of sounded like, I'd be like, where is she? Where is she? Get her off the carpet. <laughs> okay. So uh, wait, how- I actually said to my mom, like, I hate this cat so much. I think I'm going to be a bad mom. <laughs> and she's, and uh, my mom who also hates animals was uh, basically kids are different. She didn't, she didn't, josh with that at all oh okay so. so so that gave you co- wait that gave you hope but how, how long like how long were you living with this cat i was living resentfully with that cat for two three years and then uh also she pooped a lot when she gets stressed out or angry she would just poop in in very prominent spots oh, oh god i hated that cat anyway uh she ended up uh, getting a little older and she turned yellow one day and Aww. had liver failure and then i felt really sad and then i was really happy like really and then sad. you were really happy it was dead yeah no more, <laughs> no more I, oh, I just can't do i just can't do a box of poop in my house hmm. cat poop smells so bad and yeah. our, our like our apartments were always so small like you couldn't just stick it in a basement and be away from it most of the time yeah yeah you have to i was much happier with litters pardon me yeah you have to always have to get specialty litters and things to deal with that especially like in closed spaces yeah so and yeah so that actually scared me even more because i was just like i was not very good about adjusting to another animal's needs you know? <laughs> and i have bad news for you about kids from what i understand uh so let me mansplain uh children too <laughs> uh i understand they poop and puke a lot more than a cat <laughs> <laughs> And you have your pilot for a child, which is this <laughs> failed cat experiment <laughs> yeah. with the cat that, due to its many health issues, was was both living and dead at the same time. <laughs> and you get over any kind of hesitancy uh, uh, that would be cat related based on, on words from your mom. And you have the fertility test 
and uh, like how long was it because you said it was it was still kind of sudden or it felt sudden for you when you were actually pregnant very sudden it was weird because uh i think i could feel when the implantation happened i just had this weird stretchy feeling in my lower stomach Mm -hmm. and then i was just like i wonder what that was and um then i don't know why i don't i can't even remember why i decided to check but I, I did the pee stick and uh, it came out positive immediately. <laughs> like it's supposed to, it's supposed to take like a, like a minute or two. And I can just remember, like I went in there and my husband was waiting on the other side and I peed on it and immediately it showed the plus sign. I'm like, Oh fuck. So, but I, I took the extra two minutes just to like kind of sit with it. <laughs> <laughs> You're just staring at that thing so intently that it bursts into flames. <laughs> yeah. So we actually have a video of this where I come out and he uh, takes a picture of me. He's like, hey, you're pregnant. And I look like I've been hit by a truck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's priceless. (laughs) (laughs) So what were the conversations like between you and your husband at that point? I cried a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know if you ever found uh, the joy of the birthing process, but I think I'm finding it now, Beth. (laughs) I was really really scared i like i'm I'm an anxious person i have an anxiety disorder and it was in full form for dealing with this uh new life event i think i told my parents a couple weeks later and like i just cried i'm just like mom i'm pregnant and she's like maybe you're supposed to be happy (laughs) i'm not this is awful Yeah. So, and I should say, like, because it's just, there's so much to learn and there's so much unknown. And it turns out, who would have guessed it? Pregnancy and childbirth and motherhood, highly politicized. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. It was me trying to kind of find my way through, you know, the decisions I would make and the kind of alignments I was going to make and just you know, not feeling like I ever knew which, which way to go. It was very confusing. And I should say, like, um, I had a relatively, my, my, my pregnancy I would describe as medium. Mm-hmm. It was neither very hard on me or very enjoyable for me. So I had friends who were just like, uh, after they gave birth, they missed being pregnant because they just had this kind of natural endorphin and feeling of well-being all the time. Oh, I did not have that. <laughs> not not for a moment. <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but what I I also I never had morning sickness really. I um my body didn't change really dramatically. Hmm, I was like, curious I just looked like that. me with a with a belly on front. Like hmm. I never got weight gain anywhere else. My face didn't change all that much. There were a few things near the end. Uh, like when the baby came out? In the third trimester, uh, sometimes your melatonin goes dark. So suddenly I had freckles where I never had freckles before. Oh, really? Like that. Yeah. What were the things that you didn't... I guess what were the things that you were expecting and didn't expect that 
may have occurred because I, I know you mentioned that the body horror angle was a big concern but you were just you but with a belly with yeah. a pregnancy belly and like nothing else and I, it's interesting that you mentioned too i guess on that note that different women have had very different experiences because i've seen i've seen a lot of pregnancies like that where i would describe it almost as a tv pregnancy where they just give uh, an actor like a fake belly like that where it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just they're extended in one place but I've also seen, uh, you know, women, they, they become pregnant and they're like tanks. They're like, uh, they're, they're like, they're, they're everything about them is like fuller mm-hmm. because of that. I've, so I've seen, I've seen so many different kinds of changes. Um, and I guess like what, what ended up happening that didn't, that you were relieved by and what, <laughs> what didn't happen or what, sorry, what did happen that may have caught you off guard? Um, uh, the first, weirdly enough, the first trimester was the weirdest one. The one where you can't really see anything yet, mm-hmm. but your body's completely retooling itself. Uh, so I was, I, I didn't have morning sickness, but I was really tired all the time. And that went away in my second trimester, but came back in my third. And then I realized I had an iron deficiency, which happens with a lot of um, pregnant women. So it's just because I'm used to being a very energetic person and having to, after like one errand, just sleep the rest of the day off was not something I was used to dealing with. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I had an almost uh, supernatural sense of smell. And that was kind of interesting if kind of uh, off-putting, like I actually couldn't, uh, I couldn't have meat being fried in the house because the scent would just linger with me for days. I, <laughs> I could smell like a man's sweat from like across the train on the subway. <laughs> and, um, apparently, and this I've heard this. Uh, we were having a, we had a gas leak sometime, and uh, a guy came over and he was mentioning that uh, the calls they get in um, Enron gas they get in are often from pregnant women because they can smell gas before anybody else. Really? Yeah, I've heard theories that uh, the our sense of smell is atrophied, like it used to be a lot better, but it comes back a little bit when you're pregnant because your body's trying to be on high alert for um, for anything that might hurt the baby, right? Hmm. So. But and that was another thing that I really struggled with was just the fact that now everything that I did was for the baby and not me. So at first, uh, especially and this is my husband, and I had a lot of fights over this, like what I should and shouldn't eat. Oh. He was like, why would you take any risks? And I would say, like, I need to feel human. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to feel like a human. I want my salami. Okay. I was wondering what the reason, definition of a risk was. And for some reason, I just really wanted deli meats. Um, it was just one of those weird cravings that I had. I think it's because I couldn't handle cooked meats, but I oh. still needed the protein. That makes sense. That actually makes like a lot of sense. Uh, but, you know, nitrates are bad. So, uh, and the, the risk of salmonella is there. And just like we fought about that a lot. And especially since I had other friends whose husbands were very hands off on that. But uh, my husband was just like, I don't, you know, I don't know how it'd feel if, uh, you know, the baby gets a disease that happens because you ate something you shouldn't have and knew you shouldn't have, you know. So that was really tough. Also, whenever I had a cold or anything, you're not allowed to take anything, right? Like you just have to suffer through it. And that really sucked. (laughs) I really hated that. 
it just feels like this yeah you feel like uh, like your needs don't matter anymore and everything has to go through the filter of well is this good for the baby and there's so many things that they don't know if it's risky or not hmm. but they can't ethically test to see if it's uh if it hurts the baby or not yeah so they just have to be like well better safe than sorry <laughs> oh no but think about how many, maybe not necessarily uh, people our age, but certainly a generation before, just born with chain-smoking mothers and uh, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Surely, if that didn't harm anybody, then nothing can. Exactly. But I, I certainly, I think, and if we were ever to have a second one, I think we would both be more chill about that. Yeah. I would be less resentful of not being able to drink, and I think he would be a little bit more... Um, not that I wanted to, but especially near the end, I'm like, hey, let's have a wine. And even he, at that point, he was like, yeah, your kid's mostly developed. I, this is fine. So it actually became more chill as the pregnancy went on. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, too, where you're both new parents. You're both parents-to-be, and neither of you knew what you were doing, <laughs> like, because you hadn't yet. And uh, advice for advice for having a kid as far as i can tell and i'm curious what you experienced on your side when you were perhaps you know inquiring what should i be expecting what should i be doing uh like is so subjective that you almost get no good advice like that's what it seems like to me from mothers that i know yeah it's definitely overwhelming and it also doesn't help that you know there's really not one model that'll work for every every person and that's something i learned afterwards like you really just have to keep your ears open and and go with what connects because there's not going to be any one way to do it right and uh that was especially the case when we were talking about what labor was going to look like Uh my god that was that was such a that was such a minefield um yeah so (laughs) back in my 20s i'm like if i ever get pregnant i am just going to uh have a C-section because that seems easier. <laughs> Someone who hates body horror loves C-sections. Too posh to push, I think, is the way they put it. In the <laughs> please, please tell me you have that as a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and that was my plan. I was just like, yeah, hell yeah, fill me full of drugs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's a, a big movement throughout uh, motherhood in all stages that. Uh, I think what would be a good name for it? Well, the, the the movement for for what to have a natural birth or the natural woman, uh, like this 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 uh, this myth of the natural woman and what that looks like. So, hmm. um, it especially comes in with labor. So, have you heard of Ida Mae Gaskin at all? I can offer only the most unhelpful answer, and that's like, <laughs> oh, I've heard that before somewhere. Yeah, well, her name is kind of synonymous with the natural birth movement, which started in the 70s. Yeah. And basically, I had told my best friend who had already had a kid, um, my plan to just, you know, do it in a hospital, uh, be drugged throughout. And she was very, and, and, I'm, and she was certainly well-meaning, but she she pushed like, you know, you should really think about the home birth movement. And <laughs> no! She recommended the anime Gaskin book, and I read it. And... Uh, just because I was in such a vulnerable state, I didn't have the, the sense that I would have now to just throw that fucking book across the room. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, there was some logic to it. I mean, I, I her, she was very much reacting to a medicalized model of, of labor that was really made for the convenience of male doctors, you mm-hmm. know, drug the woman, put her in stirrups, 
uh, and wait for what's going to happen. You know, just really treating the woman like a piece of meat, you know? I suppose, but wouldn't you want to have professionals around? <laughs> well, like, her big... like anything could go wrong, right? Well, that's just it. Like her, her argument was these things go wrong because you're in a medicalized environment. She, hmm. um, and there's this, and this is what she talks about is that the theory that, you know, you put yourself in a medical environment and people are, are just going to automatically go towards the surgery in like in, in, cases where the risk is very low and she's like you know women have been doing this for thousands of years and you know most healthy women can do this just fine and if they are in an environment that they can control and they feel connected to their bodies they will not need these kinds of um uh what's the word i'm looking for inductions Mm -hmm. or interventions by the medical community and you have to like at this time it was very common for uh women admit labor to just get episiotomies like it wasn't even questioned that's just what you did you just cut open a woman's vagina and it's been proven now that's unnecessary so i mean there was definitely a need to react against these uh these medicalized models that were not doing women any good but it went the other direction and that if you don't do it this way you know there's something you're too weak. Like there was a real sense that it reminded me of my Catholic upbringing of guilt and shame. If this is not the direction you, you decided on because uh, how do I put this? I think it's the sense that if it's not messy and difficult and painful, then you're not getting an authentic experience and that you will. And they actually said this, like um, various women I, I talked to who did go through the natural way, like you're going to feel disconnected from your birth. You're going to feel less connected to your child because you didn't undergo this process with them. Um, you know, this is, and, but what really got to me, the thing where I'm just like, I don't know if I like this woman is the way she talked about pain. So she would repeatedly cite this study from, I think, Sweden. It's always some Scandinavian white country. Anyway, but... Um, <laughs> that... Dis. <laughs> Beth the Scandinavians drop dead. <laughs> I don't mind Scandinavians. I just don't... I'm not comfortable with the way that they're always used as, like, this great white ideal. Um, anyway, this study that they don't... They don't expect to feel pain and their their medical environment does not expect women to feel pain so they don't feel pain so she's basically saying those that pain is mostly in your head and if you recontextualize it uh it's actually not that bad and uh uh, this wasn't in her book but she uh has pictures and also she lives in on a a commune called the farm (laughs) where women can go to have natural births and often women have what she calls orgasmic births and she has pictures of them basically looking like they have they're having an orgasmic uh episode while they're giving birth she encourages husbands to fondle breasts and french kiss gross just uh, (laughs) that is not what i want to remember about my birth (laughs) that just seems like some hippie bullshit man yeah it it does it does and um, but even more, I was getting it from the other side, like, cause I was like epidural all the way and I was getting all these horror stories. I, I was, I walked into my local drugstore and this lady looks me up and down and she goes, Oh, are you having, are you giving birth at East Gen, which is the hospital I was planning? And I'm like, I think so. I hadn't decided at that point. She's like, well, they'll want you to get an, uh, an epidural. 
He's like, I got an epidural and I couldn't walk for days. Whoa. And then I had another one and uh, my back still hurts. And I was getting all of these horror stories, epidurals, like... Like, if you have an epidural, it becomes a medicalized birth. You're hooked up to an IV. You can't move. You know, you're 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 stuck in one position on your back. And uh, one person I knew, like, she couldn't feel her muscles. Hmm. So they actually had to put a mirror up to show her which muscles to use to push. Oh, wow. So, you know, that it prolongs the pregnancy. The, the baby can come out quite sluggish. Like, it's just all these horror stories. So I'm like, oh, no. And then my, my friend who had, um, uh, suggested the Ida Mae Gaskin was like, well, if you go to this different hospital, you can use nitrous oxide. Well, it's not something that's used very much in Canada, but in uh, in Europe, it's it's uh, a favored way of, of managing your pain that if you're feeling like a really hard contraction, you just take an oxygen mask full of nitrous oxide and start whiffing it. So that's and safe. Yes, it's considered oh. safe with monitoring. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's sorry. That's totally new to me. I had no idea. Yeah. So I was like, okay, but that, to do that, only certain places had that, and I would have to go to one of the, uh, of Toronto's university hospitals, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. So that was another thing that I had to figure out, and um, so I kind of, I was certainly not going to do a home birth. I'm like, I don't want that mess in my house. And so, but I was getting talked into trying for a natural birth. So at that point, uh, I couldn't get a midwife. They were booked up, but I decided, well, let's get a doula. Now, do you know what a doula is? No, I have no idea what a doula is. Okay. It sounds, my first heard is like, it sounds like I'll be giving birth in the ocean and dolphins will be there to help me through it. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of pan flute music playing. <laughs> but it's, it's not... Basically, they what I wanted was an advocate because I'd heard a lot of stories about how a lot of women they have bad memories of their their births because you know the doctors on call were dreadful or the nurses were awful and you know you actually have like a birth plan and you can't advocate for yourself when you're like screaming in pain so this person is there to help you through and make sure you get what you want you know so it's like okay. Let's get that. So she's both advocate and interpreter. Yeah, basically. Huh. Interesting. And she also, like, she, and they had all these classes, and they give you pain management techniques like breathing and, you know, pushing on certain things, which are very good for early labor. And so that was kind of like my, here's my natural, but I still want a doctor around, please. So just to make sure uh, that... Because it does still happen. I have uh, one friend of mine who had a dreadful uh, experience uh, in a hospital where the doctor, the obs, the ob guy on hand, was just really brusque with her and just gave her an episiotomy. Just didn't even tell her. Just like, okay, we're clipping that. Oh my god! Uh. Yeah. Oh Jesus. So it does still happen where people, women, get completely like bulldozed over by the medical community when they're uh, in labor. This. Ida Mae Gaskin approach that you're glad you did not commit to mm-hmm. came out of something reasonable, even if it does sound like a lot of hippie bullshit. It does. It does. <laughs> the, the farm for Christ's sakes. <laughs> like so was, my eyes rolled out of room. my head, Beth, and they left. I can't yeah. see anymore. <laughs> Yeah, so I was trying to find a middle ground. I had effectively gotten scared off of uh, epidurals, but I'm like, all right, well, we'll use all these pain management techniques and see how that goes. So um, 
So I felt like that was kind of my compromise on the whole situation. Hospital birth, uh, hippie doula, but like medical people on hand, no painkillers. Hmm. So that was what I was planning. Did you follow through on that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It rarely does. This is the thing that uh, I would say everyone I know who planned for a natural home birth, it didn't happen. So um, to me, that's just a good example of why maybe you should just go to the hospital to begin with. Yeah. I get that a lot of people don't like hospitals, and I had it too. Like I... Uh, and then I'll get into this a little later, but you know, a lot of hospitals often put people on edge. And if you're already dealing with a stressful situation, like maybe you don't want to be put in that uh, atmosphere, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm sympathetic to it, but uh, yeah, just the sense that you may end up in the hospital anyway. So, <laughs> you know. So another thing that people had me terrified by was what is called um, the induction. Uh, the intervention cycle. So the idea is if you intervene medically at one point, then you will require more in- medical interventions going down. So if you have to induce labor because your your pregnancy is going too late, your contractions are going to be more intense. So you're going to need more painkillers and the kid's going to be all messed up. So you're probably going to need like a, you're going to need to vacuum that kid out or use forceps, hmm. you know, like it's uh, the idea. There is some suggestions that if you induce labor, you're more likely to end up with a C-section. So oh. wanted to avoid that. So when my doctor's like, let's do this cervical sweep, I'm like, what's that? And they say, well, I just kind of pull away the placenta from your uterine wall, and that might encourage your labor to happen. This was like two weeks before I was due. Okay. And I'm like, sure, what the hell? So <laughs> she does it. And... Uh, uh, that and she's like you might feel some rhythmic cramping i'm like all right what does that mean (laughs) well you tell me what the difference between rhythmic cramping and contractions are because i don't know (laughs) okay (laughs) so what happens then when that uh, when that is done i leave i get a pedicure um right sex yourself up a bit yeah well i'm just like i was thinking like this is going to happen pretty soon if i'm going to be like a mess during a pregnancy i want to be able to look down and be like at least my feet look good so (laughs) i'd recommend it for all moms undergoing labor uh but that night i felt cramping and it felt like a period cramp but it was unpleasant and it was rhythmic and that went on for two days so uh and the whole time i was like is this cramps is this contractions is this cramps is this contractions and then at some point it was like this is clearly contractions like it was so intense and it was the way contractions work they're like a pain equivalent of a doppler effect it's like wow like it's like a build up build up build up crash and down Yeah, it was getting to be unbearable, and the doula was like, I'll meet you at the hospital. So off we went. It was about uh, 10 in the morning, I think, when we finally decided to take off. And uh, we, and they subsided somewhat in the cab for whatever reason. And uh, I know I walked into the, the ward, and they put me in, uh, they put me in the triad room where they... <laughs> where they monitored my signs. And at this point, like I hadn't slept for two days. I was utterly exhausted. And you probably know this when you're tired, Mm -hmm. 
pain, you just feel it so much more, you know, all of your ability to cope just, it just lessens so much. Yeah. You're at a snapping point. Yeah. And I was already like, I don't, part of one of, one of the things I get anxious about is the idea of being forgotten in a hospital. Like they just forget I'm there. (laughs) What everybody leaves the hospital's empty with just you inside. They just, no, they just leave me in a hallway and forget to check in, you know? (laughs) So I had that fear going on and, um, it was becoming more and more painful. And this is just it. Like one of the reasons I didn't want to get to the depths of pain that you do, like I wanted it to be treated is I just didn't want to go so bestial. Like one of the things that really scares me about uh, pregnancy (laughs) is that, uh, in labors, it just seems so animalistic. Like I can just remember one woman who's describing herself in a positive way is like, I was mooing. I was like, mm. I am not a fucking cow. I don't want to be mooing. <laughs> so again, we get back to your main objection with pregnancy is that it's undignified. It's undignified. And just like, that that's how they tried to sell it. Like when you're a natural birth, you'll get to this point where you have so much pain, like you forget about yourself. You forget about all of your feelings of shame. Like you're going to be naked and shitting and you're not going to care (laughs) (laughs) i take it even now after having having your daughter that you still feel quite amount of shame yeah Uh, yeah well that never went away yeah so anyway so my my anxiety levels were through the roof because I'm just like, what's going on? What's going to happen? Why am I not in the delivery room? Why am I being left here? Uh, so, in fact, the the nurses got a little scared for me. They thought I was going into preeclampsia because my blood pressure was just rocketing. Mm-hmm. Um, but my husband, who knows me very well, is just like, just get her in a room <laughs> by herself. Everything will be fine. <laughs> And he was right. As soon as we had, we were in the nice delivery room, things calmed down, and, and they asked me if I wanted to have an anesthesiologist, and I was like, fuck yes! <laughs> so, at that point, it was it was really, like, just getting scary painful, and I was just like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Guy comes in, sets up his little IV. I didn't see... Uh, he asked me to hunch over. You know, I have to wear, like, a hairnet. You do have to go into, like, a surgery mode. Hmm. And uh, he sticks a giant needle in my back, and it's just how would I describe it? It's like a fist unclenched. It's just slowly but surely, like I felt like myself again. I'm just like, oh, oh, wow. They put me on the the back of the chair because yes, I would be stuck in a chair, but at that point, I did not care, and I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And. Yeah, like I was, but I was just like so much more relaxed. I'm like, oh my god, because I think because I was so far along, like I would have been done in the next two hours. Uh, but at that point, it did slow things down. But good, that meant I could get caught up on sleep. So yeah, oh, what did they what did they inject you with? That was that was in your back. Was that like the back of the spine? Like what what was that? Yeah, it's like at the very base of the spine, and I don't know what's in an epidural, but it's like it's a local uh, anesthetic. So. What's supposed to happen is you go numb from like the waist down. And so that's what people like you. I think what people are scared about is you lose that autonomy over your body. That didn't happen to me, actually. I had what is known as a walking epidural, which is that I could s- still feel my legs. They felt like pins and needles, but I could move them. I had full control. Okay. And what was even more fascinating is I could feel, and this is where it gets a little bit grody, but I could feel my body 
changing, but there was no pain. So I could just follow it with like a sense of interested scientific detachment. Like I could feel my cervix open and widen and shift. I'm like, oh, that's interesting and not feel any pain with it. That sounds like the ideal way to go through it. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. Um, And every time I started to feel pain, I had this button to be like, more, I think it was morphine, something like that. Like, (laughs) more please. And then the pain would go away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only you could have just like rung a tiny little bell for it. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, while I was like chilling out and having a nap, but the doula and my husband went out to get sandwiches, went to go get something to eat. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I was hooked up to a monitor. So it was monitoring the contractions and I I saw them when they thought I was asleep pointing to it because the contractions, like the the needle was buried, like they were hard. Uh, Wasn't feeling anything at all, you know? Wow. So at one point, it felt to me like six hours, and Jeremy said it was like two hours later. Okay. But no, it must have been like six hours because I didn't give birth until like nine at night. So anyway, so at some point, the doctor rouses me up. She's like, yeah, I guess you should probably start pushing now. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> so um, like usually in labor, this is what's called as a transition phase where you, the contractions become extremely hard and you have this uncontrollable urge to push. And this is also when women get very shouty and start making abrupt demands and (laughs) just generally like, um, so I didn't feel a big urge to push. I was just, they're just like, you should push. So I'm like, okay, I'll push. And, uh, but I did start getting a bit shouty during that, um, that time for some reason like when i when i get anxious i start noticing noises that come and go away like footsteps and things like that and there was like an institutional clock that wasn't working properly and it just kept making a ticking noise over and over again and at one point i'm just like get that clock out of here (laughs) please tell me that a couple of orderlies tossed that clock out of the hospital like jazz being thrown out of the bank's residence on fresh prince my husband tried to do what he could he went up and, and tried to take it off but it was one of those institutional clocks so it was wired in so he had he ended up just messing up the clock and it still kept working (laughs) (laughs) delightful Um, yeah so uh the doctor was telling me to push and then what you're supposed to do is push 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 and then relax and at a certain point, I'm like, I'm kind of sick of this. I just want it to be over. And I had really strong core muscles because I do a lot of Pilates. And I was feeling a little bit cocky. So I was just like, I'm just going to push it out right now. And so I just went, and she's like, you know, she's like, you know, go off, go off, go off. And I'm like, at a certain point, I was like, no, I'm just going to keep going. She's like, oh, okay. And, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my doula came up actually and put a wrap around me to this is apparently something that you can do in natural births actually and just it helps you get in a position where you can push a little bit more effectively Hmm. and uh my doctor was apparently very impressed because she asked for a recommendation to the doula afterward oh wow basically yeah she was like a line receiver and i was going to put this baby to her and that's (laughs) exactly what happened what yeah, I was just like, Ugh! and there, and ouch, out, uh, my daughter went. And uh, what there was one very remarkable thing about that. First of all, I didn't shit. Hooray for me. Um, and secondly, <laughs> cleanest birth ever. Yeah. Uh, uh, my daughter did not make a peep. 
she did not cry. I thought you would immediately, you know, you see it on TV that babies cry. Apparently most babies do. Mm -hmm. But she just looked around and was very uh, startled, I would say, but just kind of doing, it was her personality very early on, just like taking things in as they come. (laughs) And uh, yeah. And then they laid her on me and then uh, the after effect came where I was just like, oh, you know, all that pushing you did when you weren't supposed to, it did some damage down there. So, oh, no. So there was some sewing up, but, oh. uh, you know, I, I was still fully medicated, so I didn't feel anything. So it was fine. Yeah. You have no, no memory of stitching, I guess. No, nope. that's good. So that was that. And to this day, I'm like, epidurals are the greatest. <laughs> Because it was just, it wasn't just that I didn't feel any pain, but I, the, the the fear was that I would feel very disconnected from the whole process. And I did not at all. In fact, it connected me even more because I could, I wasn't just, you know, my, my brain wasn't addled by pain and fear. So it ended up being a really positive experience. Hmm. And I, I can't help but wonder when, your daughter was born and she was not crying. She had uh, the atypical reaction of being cool with being born. <laughs> was your husband immediately like, it was those goddamn nitrates what done it? <laughs> the baby's evil. <laughs> Unfortunately, I gave birth on a weekend, which means I was stuck there for an extra day. Um, because they want to take like, uh, hearing tests and all of this crap, uh, before you leave. And so I had to wait until the Monday to get all of that stuff done. And I did not enjoy that. I do not like being in hospitals and I did not like having to stay there. I just wanted to go home. I was getting increasingly ornery with the nurses. (laughs) Basically my postpartum like anxiety was starting to set in almost immediately and i was having trouble breastfeeding that is a story for another day but okay uh, so after that triumphant uh punt across the 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 labor room uh i guess that was the climax if i can bring a a sex turn back into it sure (laughs) that wasn't creepy enough with the home natural birth stuff with the postpartum effects were they different than what you were expecting just because your birth was also different like how your your physical reactions to things uh were, were different and the ease with which you got pregnant was also i guess a little bit unusual too i'm gonna be honest it was like that fucking cat all over again <laughs> so like nurses and doctors were like shitting and barfing everywhere and you hated them until <laughs> no, they turned like, yellow and died i i was like what have i done this kid this this thing is going to be in my house all the time in my space like <laughs> there's no turning back like i was really terrified and uh and kids uh, newborns need a lot more attention than cats that's <laughs> and, true and especially the first two weeks they were probably the worst time of my life and i say that as someone who has been privileged enough not to have somebody who i care about uh, die on me or you know something very tragic happened in my life so maybe that's you know saying something about that but i think it was just because my mood was so low and i just felt so trapped and it took a while to get over that hmm. but in retrospect that is kind of necessary because 
looking after a baby requires a complete reorientation in your life. And so now I think of those first two weeks as boot camp. Like your baby is is breaking you down as a human being and rebuilding you as an effective parent. <laughs> because after that, like nothing phases you. Huh. When, uh, but, you, okay, so there, were, there was those two weeks of boot camp, but how long did it kind of settle and you and you grew to like being a mother from that initial postpartum uh, effect honestly it came back in drips and drops so i had a lot of trouble breastfeeding and it was very painful and it came, became very obvious that my baby was starving she was not getting enough milk and that was starting to get very terrifying and just the question of like do i supplement what do i do again that had a lot of guilt around it if you supplement you failed <laughs> oh so yes <laughs> yeah that's i mean i've 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 heard that but that also seems to be every bit as as kooky as the home or yeah the the, the home birth movement yeah so i mean it is true that if you don't get something established it can be hard to keep it going but um yeah and so i ended up seeing a lactation consultant and she got us through that hump um and then it would just yeah slowly like after a month uh, things settled down a little bit. Um, at four months, I moved her out of my room, and to have my room back felt a little bit more like I was coming back to myself. We sleep trained at at five and a half months, and then her schedule became more predictable. And again, I felt like you know little pieces of myself were coming back, and it just got better from there. I think as because it's amazing newborns survive. Like they just. This endless cycle of of eating and sleeping and shitting and crying and uh, you don't know how human beings can live like that because literally they sleep for twenty minutes, wake up, uh, they breastfeed for an hour, go back to sleep, and that's just like ad nauseum, hmm. you know. So when they start to have more human uh, living patterns, I think that's when I started to feel like, hey, this is kind of fun. This baby is very cute. Um, it doesn't hurt to feed her anymore. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. But though I think just me personally, like, I I think honestly I just like older children. And now that my, my daughter's a lot older, I'm enjoying her a lot more. So it was just a gradual process of getting a handle on motherhood and what I thought about it. <laughs> so in a way, part of your attitude remains, I am unmoved by this baby. <laughs> When it can speak, bring it to me. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to get too sentimental, but you know, when they, when you'd feed her and she'd fall asleep because they're just so goddamn contented with life, and you look down on their little happy faces, it's like that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and literally, like nobody else can do that but you, right? Like she had no use for my husband for the first six months. It really hurt his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the one who wanted her most of all. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> In a cruel sort of way. Uh, uh, well, then, now you're at the point, I guess, fast-forwarding a little bit, because w essentially you're growing more and more acclimatized as the demands of having a child are less well-demanding. Mm -hmm. you, you get to have your room back. You get to have a... Maybe not. Night sleep. Yeah, you, you you get to have you get to have a sleep schedule that you can mm -hmm. follow more or less. Yeah. Like, at, at what point did you realize that you can still have 
because this seems to be the major underlying concern is that you could still have any kind of life that you want and still have a child that you love and raise. I think it was when I started to get her into a regular childcare routine. So I put her into just like a home babysitter for half the day uh, when she was about 10 months old. And so I had three hours to myself every morning and I was mainly doing that to get my dissertation done, but it was just really good for me to have that space to myself uh, to just reconnect with my very often solitary and independent self, even if it was in the service of doing work. And uh, actually, that was good for me throughout. Like, I, I actually started doing work from home on a, on a TA ship when she was four months old. And even that little bit made me feel like a human again. So, and I don't know if I was going to, if I was to go through it again, that I'd have that sense of like, I'm losing myself in quite the same way. Cause I know where it ends up. Like you do eventually kind of pull yourself out of this baby haze and reconnect with the world. It actually does not last very long in the scheme of things. But I know that for me, like having that time, like basically doing what I always thought, like, here's the nanny. See you later. was <laughs> was the best thing for me because I just found like, uh, then when I did have time with her, I didn't resent her anymore <laughs> you know it's just like now i can connect with you and give you what i know that you can really benefit from and i don't feel like uh it's taking away from me you know I, that, so then i'm curious if based on that that sense of resentment did having a child feel really alien and how long uh how long did that kind of occur or was that really just gradually uh, stripped away because you mentioned again this this body horror angle this is like a huge change and mm-hmm. the complications with it like what are the like because this i don't think ever gets talked about what are the mixed feelings or at least not talked about very much it's like what are the mixed feelings of like having a child where you're getting used to this change like you don't suddenly go oh good it's here now you know what i mean yeah uh, it was tough because like you literally you can't even sit down for a meal for the first few months like they're just the, the, the demands are so constant and so unpredictable so um, that I was just like god damn it like I think I, I just really just did not I did not like feeling like an appendage all the time and I just felt um, I felt like one like I'm just an appendage to this baby and that's that's that the fear I always had that that would be what my life was reduced to was what happened. And it didn't help that uh, my husband has a very demanding job, so he was not around a lot. And so it was very lonely, too. And it, it's a different kind of loneliness when you're taking, like, a young child by yourself to a park, you know? It, it, it can be very... Because usually when I'm on my own, I'm listening podca- to podcasts or something or thinking thoughts to distract myself from the isolation. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with a baby. You have to give them your full attention. So <laughs> You were never tempted to share one earbud with a baby as you listen to stuff <laughs> you should know? <laughs> <laughs> no. So that was something I struggled with. But I think it's only in retrospect that I realized that I, I got a lot of good out of being a parent in ways I never really expected. I... And, and this is like your 20s are about trying to be your ideal self. And I feel like your 30s are about living with who you really are. Hmm. And that self that I thought I wanted to be, the jet setting, like creative, uh, I don't know, bold, 
jet setter. Like, that isn't me. I get too anxious on trips. I have a bad back. You know, <laughs> like, it's just so many ways I'm not really built for that lifestyle. And I, I have anxiety and, you know, isolation and, uh, when the future isn't known, it's not great for me. Having a kid, your life becomes very routine. You know, it's very set in routine. Turns out that's really good for me. It's really good for my mental space. I've become a much more patient and compassionate person. And I've calmed out. I've like chilled out so much compared to what I used to be. And that's, I have to say, that's because I'm a parent now. Wow. That's... I think that's that's a great final thought. That's your Jerry Springer moment right there. Yeah, <laughs> final thought. <laughs> Thanks again to Dr. Beth for coming out. Oh, man, that was such a good story. And I've got another great story for you next month, as I usually do. So when, when that adrenaline rush kicks in, it does affect your sense of sound. So there must have been screaming and yelling. I, I don't remember it. But I did hear very clearly a sound that, I would reproduce as skinitch and which sounds crazy because what my brain did with that sound, or at least it heard it manufactured. I have no idea if it manufactured the sound or what, but excuse me, as I was coming close and I could see he was working at the man's chest and neck in some way on the ground. I heard that skinitch sound. And my mind instantly linked it to a cartoon by Don Martin, a Mad Magazine cartoonist. Uh, And it was a sound effect made when one of his hapless characters uh, got a fork stuck up under his chin. And that flashed through my mind. Again, it was the, the conscious brain struggling to make sense of what was going on. Um, but it wasn't a fork. It, it was a knife, as it turned out. That's crime reporter Bill Dunphy. He's going to tell a story of murder and the consequences and fallout of a murder. This goes all the way up to the police department, how we treat the mentally ill, and the story itself, which is more sad than horrifying. Which means it's in very bad taste that it's going to be released on Halloween. Oops. Ah, uh, this whole podcast has been a mistake. But hey, you better come back and listen to my mistake, or I'm going to be in the back of your car, and I'll scream until you put this episode on. Ah, goodbye. And thereby hangs the tales a production of Megaphonic FM. Megaphonic FM! We make podcasts, and podcasts are the friends who live in your ears.